0: Isn't that video awesome? Um, I wrote some of those words, but my voice isn't as cool as that, so I've been longing to hear uh, what that video sounds like when someone impressive says that stuff. Um, We're so proud of our video team putting things together like that and expressing the creativity of God, and the video was really to try and cue you to get some of the juices flowing around this idea that you get to follow someone who is going to change who you are. And that's not bad news. You're not gonna be manipulated. You're not gonna be controlled. You're gonna be released into everything that you um, dare to dream you might be. That's the invitation of Jesus. Uh, I want you to think about uh, first century around the Lake of Galilee. If you don't know much about Israel, Galilee is this really beautiful place. It's a massive inland lake. And um, Jesus wanders up to two fishermen and says, follow me. And they drop their nets and follow him. What's going on there? What's, What's the backstory to that? So let me sort of try to help you. At that moment in first century Galilee, there was something going on that had been building to a point where in history it had never been as potent as it was going on at that moment. And it was this idea of discipleship, rabbis, traveling teachers, really impressive, powerful men of God. And they weren't very many. Rabbis were quite few and far between. Um, I think possibly there were as few as 12 that we know of around that time, so not a lot, um, would take the very, very best of the best and invite them to come and apprentice under them and be their disciples. Now, who's the best of the best? So here's the other thing you need to know about that time uh, and Jewish life generally. Every young Jew would start being trained in the first five books of the Bible, and by trained, I mean learn to memorize the first five books of the Bible in the first few years of their schooling, the beginning, memorizing the first five books of the Bible can we remember what the names of the first five books of the Bible are, right? Uh, So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, those first five books of the Bible, they memorized at the beginning. Then the best of the best qualify for the undergrad stage, Beit Midrash. And in Beit Midrash, you learn the rest of the books of the Bible, all the way through the 150 chapters of Psalms, all the way through to Malachi, the whole of the Old Testament, memorized. You're average if you can pull that off. If you're not good enough to do that, you go and learn the family trade. If you're reasonable at that, you then start to come under the tutelage of some rabbis. Now rabbis knew that everyone knew every verse because everyone had memorized them. So if a rabbi was to sit with you and start to discuss and provoke your thinking around scripture, what he would do is he would quote a certain verse to you and ask a question around that, but he would assume that you would know the verse coming before and the verse coming after and would work out from the question he's asked you that in fact he's asking you about something in the verse before the one he just quoted you. And you were supposed to work out what the question he was asking you was about and then respond with a quote of another verse that gave the impression of what you think your answer would be about the question he didn't really ask you but was secretly asking you. That's the standard, okay? And that's still fairly average. And then if you're really, really, really amazing and you've not only learnt and memorized all the books of the Old Testament and figured out how to debate and think it through and apply it to your life. You've now also gone and read all the sayings of the respected rabbis who've done interpretations and commentaries on scripture. You then might get to follow around one of these badass ninja rabbis. And if you were incredibly impressive, if the rabbi figured you had what it took to do even more amazing stuff than the rabbi could do, and don't make a mistake, rabbis performed Demon exorcisms and miracles. Jesus wasn't the first rabbi to do that. He just did them at a level never before seen. But rabbis had some power. If a rabbi looked at you and thought, you've got what it takes, then maybe, maybe, maybe for the 1% of the 1%, a rabbi would look at you and say, you don't just have to listen to my teaching and hang around with the crowd. I'd like you to follow me. And those exact words would be the invitation to an apprenticeship, which was the, pinnacle of every single young Jewish person's dream for their lives. The best of the best of the best might maybe, if they were lucky, if they found a rabbi with, with an affinity for them that they could relate to, they might hear those words, come follow me. It's just incredible to get that invitation. So you've got these fishermen, two brothers, and Jesus comes walking down the the lake shore one day. And you heard last week that they'd been at a wedding with him before. They'd already kind of known who Jesus was. And at the wedding, he'd made all the booze that they could possibly dream of, 900 bottles worth. Ross was telling us last week. So he's already the most interesting person they've ever met, (laughs) okay? Uh, And not just because of that, but there is a freedom about this man. There is like a potency about this man. His eyes sparkle. He's just attractive in the most wholesome, awesome sense of the word. And so he comes wandering down, and they recognize he's a rabbi. Well, he's claiming to be a rabbi. He's carrying on like he's a rabbi. But they're fishermen. What does that mean? It means they dropped out of the system, right? They're not the best of the best. They've picked up the family trade. And so they'd have been mending their nets, that sparkling morning, Lake of Galilee. The light has a special quality there in the mornings. The air had been crystal clear. You'd have seen the snow of Mount Hermon far in the distance in the north, And they'd have been fishing off the coast of the little village that they grew up in. And the villages around Galilee were generally quite small and insular. Cousins and uncles and aunties made up a small village. And as I said, this rabbi culture was really at its peak around the area of Galilee. So that's where rabbis would go. That's where rabbis would recruit their disciples out of, which means if a rabbi came into a village and recruited someone, the whole town would celebrate. Everyone understood what it meant, to hear the words, follow me. It meant they were gonna drop whatever they were doing and make their whole life about following this rabbi and emulating him in every way they could. Sleep the way he sleeps. If he sleeps on his right with his arm out and his leg curled, you sleep the same way. If he prays with a certain accent, you try to mimic that accent. If he has specific interpretations of Scripture, you learn them by heart and you understand them. That was called his yoke, his understanding of Scripture. And you would learn the yoke of your rabbi, which makes it so cool when Jesus says, you can take my yoke, it's easy and light. It's not oppressive and legalistic like the other yokes you've heard of. And you would spend the rest of your life committing fully So you're trying to think the way your rabbi thinks. See the world the way your rabbi sees the world. Understand God the way your rabbi understands God and do the things he does. And so this rabbi, the most exciting they've ever met, comes wandering down the shore that sparkling morning. And these two fishermen, as I say, mending their nets. They've got boats to pay off. They've got a business that they run. Peter has a wife. They've got a life. And Jesus says, come follow me. At first, that seems weird that they say yes. But when you understand the context, of course they said yes. You would as well, wouldn't you? If Elon Musk came and said, I want you on my exec team, I want to just, you know, train you in the ways of business and badassery for the next however long, like you, you, you'd, if the person who is the most amazing at the things you long to be amazing at, the person who is world renowned came and said, I just want to take you under my wing, I think you can do what I do, uh, and so I just want to give you a, an internship for the next little while, you'd, you'd go, you'd do it, especially in that culture, especially in that time in Galilee where it was the The thing that everyone longed to do. And so Jesus says to to Peter, to his brother John, come boys, follow me. And they drop what they're doing. And they follow him. And their expectation is they're going to be like their rabbi. This isn't just some good idea. Romans 8 confirms. This is what God actually thought. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them he called them. And having called them he gave them right standing. And having given them right standing He gave them his glory. This is your story. This is what God hopes will be your story. He's picked you. He's called you. If you're here today, you're already in the process. You're already in the dialogue, even if you're not yet aware and you're not yet sure you trust Jesus. He's going, I see you. I want you to apprentice under me. I want you to be like me. And that's not oppressive. That's not manipulation. That's not giving away your right to be the special daffodil individual that you think you are. No, this is the most awesome person who's ever lived coming and saying, I think I can turn you into the most awesome person you could imagine being. All of my theology is summed up in the idea of God is kiffer than you think, and you can be too. And that's kind of what's going on here, right? Um, And so last week, we started to look at who Jesus is, what he was actually like, because the tragedy of much of our church education, I suppose, or religious education, is that we know sort of some stuff about Jesus. But I'm not sure we... Or really helped to see who he actually was, what he was like. We've lost his personality. And if you're called to be his disciple, to emulate him in every way you can, it makes sense that you'd wanna know him, what he was actually like. And we've called this series, I Am Disciple, not I Am A Disciple, because A, we're too cool to be bound by the rules of grammar. Um, but, well, not really. It still kind of freaks me out a little bit because I'm a grammar Nazi. But because you would say I am... A son, if, well, let me describe myself. I'm a son, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a pastor, I'm a football fan, whatever else. You know. I'm a sort of outdoorsy, adventurous person. I'm an extrovert. That's when you use the word I am a. It's like I'm talking about some part of my life. But when I tell you who I really am, I just say, I am Paul. Well, what Jesus is asking you (laughs) is not to say, well, I am a disciple along with also, you know, I've got a box for Netflix and I've got a box for work and I've got a box for Jesus and I've got a box for hobbies and I've got a box for finances. He's going, no, 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 I'm not interested in being one of the boxes in your life. Jesus is not interested in being one of the boxes in your life. He's saying, come follow me if you dare and put everything else subordinate to the idea that you are a disciple. You are disciple. That is your destiny. That is what Christian maturity looks like. That's where the stuff gets exciting. When it's no longer some box in your life, but it is the thing that informs every other thing. And of course, there's a process. Of course, some of us are still checking Jesus out and he, throughout his ministry, had huge time for the people who were still checking him out. He has loads of time for you if you're still checking him out. But the invitation in this series and this morning is to just take one step closer to this rabbi. Okay, well, let me try and mimic you in this way. Let me try and model my life on you in that way. Let me take a risk and, and see if I can be like you in another way and move towards this identity of I am his disciple. That's who you are. And so we heard last week that Jesus is free. That's pretty cool. And that's not a, it's not a hard sell. We all wanna be free. right, you all want freedom in your lives. And we heard that Jesus was the only person controlling Jesus. No one else was controlling Jesus, which sounds awesome. He wasn't controlled by guilt. He wasn't controlled by social pressure. He wasn't controlled by sin and temptation. He was totally free, free from worry, free from doubt. And his disciples would have been fascinated by his freedom. He could be around the worst of the worst and the supposedly best of the best. And it wasn't marking him at all. He wasn't being manipulated at all. This week, I wanna tell you something else about Jesus. And um, this would probably be one of the things that would arrest your attention first about him if you were to meet him this week at Life Group or if Jesus was to be on the sideline of the sports field, if you're watching your kids play sport this coming weekend or if you were to bump into him in the shop and get into a conversation. You would start to experience this of Jesus very soon. It It would be quite mesmerizing to you. And this thing about Jesus I'm gonna string it out a little bit and tell you later what it is. But th- this thing about him is absolutely what made him perfect for the world and yet at the same time, absolutely what made him so different from the world. Because this personality traits of Jesus is something we're all longing for, we're all aspiring to, we're all attracted to, and yet no one before and no one since him has ever actually lived up to this idea. One of his disciples was so marked, so affected, so mesmerized by this personality trait of Jesus is, that from that moment on when he wrote about his experiences and time with him, all he could ever do was call himself the disciple Jesus loved. I'm talking about John, and I'm talking about the fact that Jesus was breathtakingly loving, like loving. Love motivated every single thing he did. He was so in love with the people that he was around that it was shocking and to some extent uncomfortable for his disciples. It was exhausting for them at times. And yet it so deeply marked them that from that moment on, all they could ever think about was he just loves. He he was passionate about love. He was obsessed with it at a time when few people would have been talking about love. The Pharisees at that time certainly weren't teaching about the love of God. John the Baptist didn't teach about the love of God. You don't see a lot of the love of God spoken about. It's in the Old Testament prophets Hosea, people like King David were speaking about this loving God and yet you need the lens of Jesus' life to look back on the Old Testament and see that it was there all along. We'd kind of missed it. Uh, And so you would speak about God being powerful or holy or the king, but the idea that he was a loving father yearning to be reunited with his kids was sort of lost on people. And then Jesus starts preaching and he's talking about love, love your God just like he loves you, just like I love you, love each other, love your neighbor, Hey, and sometimes it's actually easier to love the person who doesn't live in your house. So love your spouse as well. Love your kids. Um, Love your enemies. Don't love money too much. That's not good for you. Love the stuff that's good for you. Don't love your life as you know it so much that you're not prepared to entrust your life to me. Jesus spoke about love all the time. And you need to know that Jesus' preaching was awesome. It would have been amazing to listen to. Other teachers of the day would have been all academic and sort of separated themselves from human emotion and human experience. Jesus' teaching was practical. And Jesus showed a great sympathy for and knowledge of human desire and human emotion. Instead of being all sort of aloof and holy Joe, when Jesus spoke, he used word pictures that people could understand. He would say, hey guys, you know, if you lose a treasure, something that is deeply precious to you, something, maybe you've got a Kruger Rand and you're like, your granddad gave that to you and, and you've lost it and you're freaking out. You turn your whole house upside down. You know what that feels like? Or, hey, are there shepherds here? Yeah, there are lots of shepherds here. Okay, so you'll know this. You know when you lose your little, the little lamb that you have a soft spot for and you're dead tired, you've been walking all day, but you hike on naked feet all night looking for this little lamb, freaking out about the idea of this distressed little thing, lonely and lost and afraid. Or parents, any parents here? Have you ever had the daydream of your child going so wildly off the rails, so hard and so fast that they get out of earshot of your love and start making self-destructive decisions. Parents, have you ever had this like waking nightmare of your kid destroying themselves almost to spite you? Imagine they came back. Imagine your kid came back. Imagine you got it all back. Imagine you found the lamb, found the treasure. Imagine your kid dared to trust you again. Imagine how your heart would overflow. That is how your father feels about you. And people are listening to Jesus going, what God is loving, and not just Jesus is talking about the Father loving them. They would have experienced, as Jesus was preaching, he loves us. He absolutely loves us. John, the disciple that would always just talk about himself as the disciple Jesus loved, because this feature of Jesus' life was so radical for him. He, when Jesus eventually had been arrested and was gonna be crucified, all the disciples ran, they were afraid, but he snuck behind the crucifixion mob and was close enough to eavesdrop on what Jesus was saying as he was being nailed to the cross. Now Jesus, remember, preached about loving your enemies. He gave huge amounts of time to the Pharisees who were trying to trip him up the whole time. He spent as much time with them as anyone. Most of us would have just avoided them after a while. So Jesus had already walked the talk. But John is sick to his stomach watching his best friend and hero being killed by these wicked people in this jumped up kind of kangaroo caught, totally unjust situation. And they stretch out his arms and these Roman slaves take nails and start to hammer them into his wrists. And when everyone else would scream out obscenities at that moment, Jesus screams out prayers. And John eavesdrops and listens that as Jesus is watching the nail going into his hand, he's going, Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And for that reason and so many more, John was so impressed by the love of Jesus, the quantity and quality of love, the fact that everything Jesus ever did was motivated by love. That late in his life, church history tells us, when he was like knackered, madala, couldn't preach very well, he was sort of retired in the church in Ephesus and they'd wheel him out every now and then to preach. And he would come out there and he would just say, children, just love each other. If you've got anything from God, just love each other. Amen. And he'd go and sit down. Because God is love. And I know you didn't walk in here this morning hoping to be told to be more loving. In fact, most of us are nervous about even living up to the love commitments we've already made. I get that. But if you've not experienced the breathtaking scale of Jesus' love for you, if you've not seen this part of his personality, that he was just overflowing with love all the time, then we've tragically missed part of his personality. And I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit allows us to just experience this part of Jesus a little today. And then I'm gonna show you how, in fact, this is exactly what you need to experience more of him. So let me just pause before we tell some more stories about Jesus. And I'm excited to tell you about these stories, almost as excited to tell you these stories as I am about the community day, which I'm really like, I've decided it's gonna be my best day of my life and you're just welcome to join in. I'm busy planning the football we're gonna play. and um, I don't know, Let's just... Do some definitions, okay? Before we go any further talking about how Jesus expressed love, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. We can put a a synth track behind this. (laughs) Sticking with music, and I'm gutted that last week uh, Ross Blair already quoted Frozen, because that like ripped the rug out. I had all these Frozen quotes I was gonna make. Um, It's good to know someone else has that secret love of that movie. Um, I think it's Michael Bolton. Like the seediest song I think ever written uh, has the line, I wanna know what love is and I want you to show me. And I think it's seedy because I don't think for one second that guy actually wants to know what love is. I think he has a very good idea what love is and he knows exactly what he wants her to show him. Um, but there's this, oh, that got like one laugh from the one person who's <laughs> prepared to admit. <laughs> is it not Michael Bolton? Am I, uh, okay, I'm, repent. Um, <laughs> what is love actually? I mean, this is the chief human emotion. This is the this is started wars, this is, cause all kinds of very dumb decisions to be made. And it's multifaceted, isn't it? I mean, some sort of po-faced preachers will get up and say, well, you know, being in love is totally different from love. And they're right, it's true. The experience of being, you know, infatuated and in love is quite different from the choices, the kind of long-term choices that love requires. But it's still all part of the same continuum. Um, There are things that you love that are inanimate. You, You know, you can love your car or you can love your Career, you can love the place you work. That generally lasts a week or so. Um, But if you you get recruited by Google, you'll love that place for a while. Um, There are ways that you can love your kids that are different from how you would love a romantic interest, that are different from how you would love friends. But I've been trying to sort of reflect on what love is for a while now. What's the stuff? What's the experience? And I think, uh, I mean, don't stop me if you think I'm wrong, but um, it seems to me like the core. Correlation between all of these is that experience of having someone else dominate your thoughts more than you dominate your own thoughts for a while that brief experience of finding someone else more interesting than you find yourself and That's what makes love so exhilarating and so incredibly terrifying because when you're truly in love with someone Then who they are what they're into what they think what they're experiencing becomes fascinating to you they start to dominate your thoughts which means they can hurt you a huge amount, right? You've stopped protecting yourself from them. You've just become, you're no longer playing it cool. You're all in, you're all vulnerable. But love seems to go wrong or go stale or become a little bit of a scary place to be when we, out of insecurity, start to think about ourselves again in that relationship. So when I'm just thinking about you, when I'm interested in your needs, your feelings, your experiences, your strengths, and I'm just assuming, I'm just trusting that you love me back, Everything is roses. But when I start to wonder, do they think I'm that great? Have they discovered that thing about me that I hope they wouldn't discover about me? Are they looking at me funny? Do these people really accept me? And you start to have that old subject return to your thinking, you. (laughs) When you start to think about yourself again, then all that fear and insecurity starts to build up and that's when love starts to get suffocating or controlling or manipulative. I'm no love expert, that's for sure. And I'm sure there are other ways to think about love. But seems to me that when we're loving, when we're fully loving people, we are thinking all about them and not about ourselves. And if that's what love is, I wanna show you how Jesus lived that way. Jesus kind of forgot about himself. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't seem to think about himself very much. He thinks a lot about his father and he thinks a lot about everyone else. And he's really interested in what they're up to What his father is doing, he takes his cue from. What people need, he responds to. And at no point does Jesus seem to be stressing, how am I coming off right now? Do they like me? What do I need? How secure is my place in the world? So the day after, he's recruited those guys off the seashore. He's got his freshly minted disciples following him around. The next day is the Sabbath, Saturday. And so the Sabbath starts early and everyone's heading to synagogue. Uh, And they're in the town of Capernaum, one of the largest towns on the shore of Galilee with very dark stone cobbled streets. Uh, You can still see them today. And all these narrow streets would have been resounding with the pitter-patter of people rushing to synagogue because the tradition was that you have to rush to synagogue. You have to walk fast to synagogue. Don't dawdle because you need to show how eager you are to worship God. Wouldn't mind if that infiltrated our culture (laughs) today. (laughs) Um, No, no, you can come whatever time you like. Um, Oh, the grace of God It's difficult. Um, The... Um, so, so that, and you can still experience this today, actually. I, I mean, I've had the privilege of going to Israel twice, and in Jerusalem on Sabbath, the whole place is rushing. Everyone's kind of in this mad scramble to get to. You know, many people want to celebrate Sabbath at the Western Wall of the ancient uh, Temple Mount, and so the, or what commonly you would call the Wailing Wall. And so there are people rushing there. It's like, guys, just leave five minutes earlier, and you wouldn't have to rush. No, the point is, you have to show that you're eager to get to synagogue. Problem is, synagogue was really boring, really sucked. So most people kind of wanted to pull a sickie and not go there. And it was illegal not to go to synagogue, the elders would bust you, unless you could prove that you were ritually unclean, i.e. it was your period or you were sick. And so for half the population, the period excuse would have been a difficult one to buy, Um, and so the blokes would have been pretending that they were sick. Uh, And so people would have been trying to get out of synagogue. But on this day, on this Saturday, everyone was going, because this wine out of water, miracle-wielding, authority-speaking rabbi who's turned up on the scene is gonna be preaching in the synagogue that week. And so Jairus, the guy who's in charge of the synagogue, has invited Jesus to preach and just subtly put the word out on social media um, that this guest preacher was gonna be there. So people were genuinely rushing and the synagogue would have been full to capacity. And uh, they go through the Psalms and the ritual worship stuff, which would have been a bit boring, and then uh, it's time for Jesus to preach. And so the ruler of the synagogue hands him the scrolls. Jesus opens the scrolls, sits down, reads the passage. And what would normally have followed would have been a fairly long-winded explanation of, well, this rabbi interprets the passage this way, this rabbi interprets the passage this way, this other verse seems to connect to this. And the, the rabbi would have spent a lot of time helping you realize that you didn't understand what the scripture said. And you would leave feeling kind of confused and mystified and insecure. Jesus reads the passage and goes, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and there is just power and authority. And he's speaking practically. And everyone's on the edge of their seats. And you're not allowed to speak in synagogue. You're not even allowed to say amen or ride that boss or any of the things that Sia uh, tells you to say uh, on, on when he's preaching. So everyone's like trying to not exclaim, but they're just going, this is amazing. This is life. What's this man saying? And then shock horror, this demon possessed guy has snuck in. Now everyone kind of knows him. He's got the crazy eyes, you know, the crazy eyes. <clears throat> you might have dated someone with the crazy eyes. And um, so they know not to let him in. But uh, he's snuck in in the crowd and he starts screaming and making a racket at one point during the preach. And everyone's going, oh, please ignore him, Jesus. Please ignore him. He reflects so badly on our town. Please ignore him. Uh, and it's this classic age old taunt. What have we got to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? This demon possessed guy speaking, possessed by an evil spirit. He's trying to blaspheme the son of God. And the demons all knew exactly who Jesus was, even when the humans didn't. And everyone's going, oh, just ignore him, just ignore him. And Jesus turns and he looks at this man who everyone else is cringing and hating, and he loves him. And he speaks with authority and he says, you get out. And the demon goes, and this man suddenly sits down with an intelligent look in his face, stops making any noise. And then after synagogue, Jesus is patient, answers everyone's questions, hangs out with them. Then Peter comes rushing up, and his mother-in-law wasn't pulling a sickie. She's genuinely sick, ill with fever, and please, Jesus, come. I think my mother-in-law is gonna die and in front of my wife, I need to say I don't want that to happen. Um, and so Jesus um, so Jesus goes to Peter's house um, and speaks to her and rebukes the sickness and there's tenderness in his face and helps her up and she's suddenly fine. And she's so aware of the love that she's just experienced that she wants to react in whatever way she can and so she goes and starts to make food for everyone. And then sun starts to set and now, specifically speaking, the uh, Sabbath is over. And no one's wanted to bother Jesus on the Sabbath because they still kind of think that healing is work. But as the sun goes down, the disciples here the sort of scrape of some wood on the cobblestones outside. And they look outside and there's a stretcher being put down and another one behind it and another one behind it. And there's sick people queuing up down the street, round the corner, filling up the whole place. And Jesus is exhausted and he's been, I mean, preaching's tiring, I'm told. And, um, and he's healed this lady and he's been social to the whole town takes a deep breath, heals the first one, heals the next one. And the disciples are watching in the same way that he could celebrate and party and enjoy enter into it at the wedding in Cana, he's now entering into these people's suffering and he's empathizing with them and they can see that it's costing him. Jesus got tired by what he was doing, guys. He didn't just float through it. And so he's healing the next one and he's praying for the next one and he's listening to this old lady tell him what's wrong and he's going, man, I'm so sorry to hear that. My father loves you and he fixes that problem and he fixes the next and it gets later and later and later and the disciples are wanting to keep the people away from him. They can see that he's getting almost fragile and exhausted and he just keeps loving on the next one and the next one and the next one until there's no one sick left in the whole town of Capernaum. And then he goes, okay guys, I'm done, and crashes. And then the next morning they go to find their rabbi going, this is the most amazing thing we've ever seen. And they can't find him, he's disappeared. And so they run up onto the hillside that Sunday morning, the first day of the week to try and find their rabbi. And Peter thinks he knows where he is and tracks him down and he's hiding in a, hiding, he's hanging out in a hollow on the hillside and they eavesdrop on him praying, in this incredibly intimate way with his father, just hanging out with his dad. And they've never heard anyone speak to God with such love and intimacy and boldness as the way Jesus speaks. And they say, well, everyone's looking for you. The whole town, you know, they've found more sick people now. And Jesus goes, well, there are other towns that I wanna go and visit. Uh, we need to be, preach there as well. And he's totally free from their needs. And he goes off to the next town and loves the next ones and the next ones. And on the way, bumps into some young ruler who wants to tell Jesus, he, you know, he's a kind of vintchat who says he wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus Mark remembers it. Mark describes it as Jesus moved with genuine love, says to the man, okay, well, then you need to sell everything you have. How does Mark know that Jesus was moved with genuine love? Unless as they're traveling, as they're camping in the same spots, he listens to the way Jesus speaks about the people he's encountered that day, prays for them later. Oh man, I hope that young guy gets over his greed. How else would they know what Jesus was like unless they, I mean, if you've traveled with someone, you you know what's real and what's put on. And the disciples sleep where Jesus sleeps, eat what he eats. He shares his food with them, serves them most times. At one point, would even wash their feet. Just so awkward. And they experienced, they're wandering along. Then this crazy demon-possessed guy comes out. Jesus loves on him and heals him instead of being afraid of him. Then a leper turns up. Now, a leper, I mean, if you're worried about coronavirus people, like you don't, it was so terrifying to be around a leper. Lepers would not only make you sick, they thought, they didn't yet know that leprosy wasn't actually contagious. They were convinced it was contagious, but also it made you richly unclean, which means you'd be excommunicated from the community. A leper comes up, everyone's like, oh, you know, look the other way, get out of the way. The lepers were supposed to know better. They're supposed to stay in the leper colony. Jesus just throws his arms around the leper, heals him as well, but just loves on him then bumps into a lady who's been caught in adultery, who's about to get stoned. He just sorts that whole thing out, looks at her with tenderness in his eyes and says, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more, you're free, I don't condemn you. And this goes on and on and on. One Sabbath, the Pharisees have now got onto what Jesus is doing and they do think that healing on the Sabbath is work and blasphemy. And so how cruel is this? They find some guy with a withered hand um, begging at the robot. And um, they call him into the synagogue and put him in the front row to like taunt Jesus to see what he would do. And Jesus knows they're setting a trap for him, that he knows it's gonna cause him unending admin, but he's preaching and he sees this young man with a withered hand who's being used like a pawn. And love wells up into this kind of righteous indignation almost and he just stops and he says, stand up, son, come right here. Doesn't do it sneaky on the side afterwards. He puts this young man that he loves in front of everyone. He says, just stretch out your hand, for goodness sake. Be healed. Sit back down. And he carries on. His love is so potent. It's not just namby-pamby. He turns up in Jerusalem. Um, oh, we're sort of running out of time. Let me just tell you this last story. So in the, in. The temple in Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies in the middle, was where no one dared go unless it was your turn and you were a high priest, because the presence of God was so potently terrifying there. Then, outside of that, in the sort of middle courts, was where Jewish people were allowed to to go and worship. And then the outer courts were called the Gentile courts, where if you loved God but you weren't Jewish, you could go and worship, but at a distance. That was the best you could do. Um, but because the people in charge of the temple were so corrupt, they had allowed money changes and Um, livestock traders into that outer court? Why would there be livestock traders there? Well, because to worship a holy God, unholy sinful people need to offer a sacrifice. You and I, fortunately, have Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice to claim every time we want to come into the presence of God. But before that had happened, you needed to bring an animal to atone for the sin that you had committed, and so you needed to buy one. But the temple custom was that you could only buy one with the holy currency of the people of Israel, a shekel. But Israel was a prefecture of Rome. The currency of the day was the denarius. No one used shekels for any other trade but temple um, sacrifice, which means that you have to take your denarius which you earn and which you spend and which you buy groceries with and go to the temple and then some corrupt fleecing money changer would go, well your 50 denarii get you two shekels today, and then you would take your two shekels, that really was a ridiculous exchange rate, and buy at exorbitant rates the lamb or pigeon or dove or whatever it is you needed to make your sacrifice, and so the people are getting fleeced, and in the middle of all this chaos and hubbub, which is not supposed to happen in the temple, the Gentiles who want to worship God and who are already confined to the outside are like, you know, wedged in the midst of the Victoria Street market, chaos, chaos trying to worship God. And Jesus walks in and he is so moved with love for his father whose temple is being desecrated, so moved with love for these people who are being taken advantage of, the Gentiles who aren't getting an opportunity, even, I would argue, moved with love for the corrupt temple officials who had missed the point of their glorious calling. And he goes and he makes a whip out of love and he starts herding animals, and turning table after table over, and shouting, my house will be a house of prayer, says my father, not a den of thieves like you've made it. He flips all the tables over, and he boots all the animals out, and people are all freaking out, and then after the dust has settled, you hear the I'm a croak-a-croak-a" sound of sick people, and the lame coming into the temple who would normally not have been allowed in because they seem to sort of desecrate the place. I mean, you can have sheep and goats and money changers, but you can't have the sick. And Jesus goes, no, you guys are welcome to come in. And he heals every one of them. And then you had children coming in who up until then had been refused access to the temple because they make too much noise. And Jesus welcomes them all in and hangs out with the kids and is blessing them. And because kids are smart, they work out, this is really God. And they say, thank you, Lord, for giving us your son. And then the temple officials say, Jesus, do you hear what these guys are saying? These little kids are blaspheming. And he goes, don't you remember the scripture it says, out of the mouths of babes, you have ordained praise. They know what's going on. And he's still loving them, going, guys, please open your eyes and see who I am. He just loves all the time. I want us to try and understand why. We're just gonna go for another two minutes. Okay, we can do this in two minutes. This is, I think, where Jesus fuel for for loving like this comes from. Because as I said, most of us didn't walk in here this morning going, yeah, I wanna be taught how to be more loving. That just sounds like hard work. That sounds like a recipe for more pain and disappointment. You didn't come in here wanting to be told that your rabbi loves all the time and you're called to emulate him. Here's why I think you want this. That same disciple, John, later would write in his first letter, dear friends, let's continue to love one another for love comes from God. It's not a human emotion, we didn't make it up. It's not just some natural physiological, psychological thing. It actually comes from God, he's the source of it. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who doesn't love, doesn't know God. For God is love, that's a strange thing to say. Not God loves a lot, not God is pro-love, not God is very lovable, he is love. The actual stuff is him. If there wasn't God, there would be no love. Where there is God, there is love. It's who He is. You probably did walk in here this morning going, well, I'd like to connect with God more. I don't know about you, but every human being, or I certainly, am frustrated by how hard it is to connect with God. We don't have the right apparatus. Our wiring is all wrong. It seems like difficult to connect with God and you have to adjust so much of your fallen nature to be able to connect with God. All of us wanna experience Him a little bit more. Well, here John is saying, well, if you wanna experience God, He is love. When you love one another, his love is made perfect, he goes on to say. When you treat each other the way he wants you to treat each other, he's there, he's in your midst. If you wanna know God, if you wanna experience God, do some loving. Experience the love of God. And you can't love until you've experienced love. You can't love until you think you have something of value to give. Because if we go back to our original non-Michael Bolton definition, love is when you start thinking about the other person more than yourself. And as long as you're feeling insecure and afraid and not sure that you've got much to give, you can't love properly. You're still thinking about yourself. Let me show you where I get that idea from. From verse 16, God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. Okay, so what's more perfect love look like? We will not be afraid on the day of judgment but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. We're his disciples, we're like him. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it's because we fear punishment and this shows that we've not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. The opposite of love, the enemy of love, friends, is not hate, it's fear. It's fear and insecurity that stops us loving. It's fear and insecurity that needs to be driven out by perfect love. And so just as an experiment this week, if you wanna be like your rabbi, if you wanna walk around loving like Jesus loved, I have found it very difficult to walk around (laughs) Lily's quarter loving people when I'm walking around initially judging them or being intimidated by them or evaluating them compared to me or wondering who's dressed well and who's not or who looks nice or who doesn't or who seems like a threat to me or who's not. All the ways that normally fear causes us to look at people that insecurity, are they better than me, are they not? Are they a threat to me, are they not? Can they meet my needs, can they not? If you're able to just pause in the car before you go into Clue Village Mall and go, okay, just remind me, God, you love me completely. I have nothing to fear. I can face you with confidence. You think I'm great. You have a tone for everything that's wrong with me. You love me. Okay, that's the last I need to think about myself. And then you walk into the shop, your workplace, your home the parents whose kid just bullied your kid, the boss who just gave you unfair workload, the spouse who's treating you in ways that make you feel disrespected. And you walk in there and instead of thinking about yourself and protecting your place in this world, you walk in thinking about them because you have no fear because perfect love drives out fear. And then this isn't hard. You have been wasting so much energy and bandwidth thinking about yourself. If you release yourself from that, you have so much energy left to love others. Yesterday I was fighting with Burn because I was preaching about love today. And so that's how it always seems to work. Um, and we'd misunderstood one another. You know, the person that you love can hurt you. And uh, I had felt like she was being careless with my heart and the words she was saying. And then in my reactions, she had actually felt like I'd already been ignoring her. And then and it just kind of built to the point where both of us had behaved badly towards one another and we were feeling disconnected. And that feeling of like, I have messed up and also I am being treated unfairly can be really hard to get over. Ask anyone in the Middle East. When you feel like you've been wronged and you also are feeling a bit guilty that you've done wrong, peace is like impossible to produce on human effort. And I'm sitting outside like, oh, this feels sucky and she's nasty to me and, oh, and I think I probably am in the wrong in that area, but I also think I probably had good reasons for making that mistake. and um, I'm sitting there feeling all sorry for myself. And I've prayed this a few times uh, when you just can't fix your marriage. I know this sounds like a silly situation, but we've also just had another kid. <laughs> so like we don't have a lot of sleep. We don't have a lot of elastic left for one another. So it felt pretty hard to fix. And crumbs, I've got to preach about love tomorrow. And like, I don't feel very safe in the main love relationship in my life. What am I gonna do? Um, so okay, Jesus, please. Do the thing you do. Please help me here. And you know what he did? And this is not because I'm very impressive. He did what he always does. He reminded me that I'm perfectly loved, and then he stopped me being in the conversation at all. And he gave me the supernatural ability to empathize because that's what he does all the time, doesn't he? He empathizes, he feels, and he's not afraid to feel. The rest of us are afraid to feel because we can just barely hold on to our lives as they are. If I have to feel your pain as well as my pain, I'm gonna fall over. But Jesus is so secure in the love of God that he can empathize. And suddenly I'm going, oh, this must be sucky for burn. Oh, wow, she's got this newborn who needs from her and everyone seems to need from her and she's feeling like I'm not helping her enough and who cares about the rights and wrongs of it and what she didn't actually interpret correctly from me. like? that must suck for her and all this love wells up from I don't know where and I'm running inside there I'm being all romantic and last night at eight o'clock I'm in the shop with sanitary pads and chocolate just feeling like a love hero you know Um, like don't be embarrassed to be that guy and um, this is what's possible because you can't love people when you're still afraid You can't love people when you're still thinking about yourself. And God has sorted it out because He is love, that He can love you so well that you no longer feel afraid, that you no longer have to think about yourself, and you can be thinking wholly and utterly, your thoughts can be dominated by your Father and these people who He loves. And just watch what happens this week when you walk around just sniping people with love because it's actually the thing that's gonna fuel you. Rather than make you exhausted, it's gonna energize you.